This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is thy name? A name unmusical to the Volskins' ears and harsh in sound to thine. Say, what's thy name? Thou hast a grim appearance, and thy face bears a commandment. Though thy tackle's torn, thou showst a noble vessel. What's thy name? Prepare thy brow to frown. Knowst thou me yet? I know thee not. Thy name? My name is Caius Martius, who hath done to thee particularly and to all the Volskis great hurt and mischief. Thereto witness me my surname, Coriolanus. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to The Play's The Thing. This is Act 4 of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, and you just heard Richard Burton as Gaius Martius Coriolanus and Kenneth Hay as Ophidius. Sarah Jane Bentley, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Tim. Thanks for the welcome. I'm really well. How are things with you? Things are complicated on the home front. Um, I won't go into great details, but uh, not only have we been afflicted by, not only has my particular locale been afflicted by the coronavirus, but we also had a small house fire. I've talked about this on Close Reads. And so we all had to like kind of like leave the house and the cottage where I live. And now we're back, but we're wrangling with the insurance company and everyone is scattered across Seattle while not much work is happening on the house. So that's where we are. And I have no hot water, which I'm getting a little bit whiny about. Mm. Pestilence and fire and no hot Pestilence and fire and no hot water. Sounds a lot like ancient Rome. It does sound a lot like ancient Rome. And um, we are going to like learn a little bit about ancient Rome in this podcast, Sarah Jane. And we talked about this before we started recording. Because so much happens in Act 4, plot-wise, so much happens 
we're going to do something a little bit different and we're going to go scene by scene in this podcast. And one of the things that we're going to talk about in addition to all the other plot events that happen is we're going to talk a little bit about the Roman Republic. It'd be nice to learn a little bit about what the structure of the Roman Republic is. So when people hear the plebes and the tribunes and the consuls all jockeying against each other, we have a better sense of the kind of structure of um, ancient, the ancient Roman Republic. But let's start with Act 4, Scene 1. So this occurs right after this beautiful line that we hear at the end of Act 3. The tribunes banish Coriolanus from Rome, and, Rome and, and, and Coriolanus in turn says, no, I banish you. We meet Coriolanus again in 4-1. He is with Cominius and Meninius. He's also with Volumnia, his mother, Virgilia, his wife, and their son, and they are preparing for Coriolanus to leave Rome. Okay, so he's on his way out. It's so sad. Coriolanus is trying to keep, you know, a stiff upper lip like his mother taught him, but he's on his way out. Um, Sarah Jane, a question. Are there any intimations in this scene about what Coriolanus is going to do, about where he's going to go? We know that he's going to meet with Aufidius, like because we've seen the whole play. But at this point in the play, do we have any indications that he's going to do that? I think he seems to already be plotting here revenge and that he yeah. did some subtle hints for this. He makes quite a prophetic comment. He says, your son will or exceed the common or be caught with courtless baits and practice. So he says that I'm, I'm either going to um, outdo everyone's expectations or I'm going to be mm caught in a trap. Mm. And uh, in a sense, that is what happens. Um, he also says to his family and to the nobility of Rome and to the, the military uh, leaders, fare well. Uh, you shall hear from me still and never of me aught but what is like me formerly. So there's already a sense here that he knows he's going to be transformed into something completely yeah. different. And, um, of course, they do hear from him. But the first thing they hear from him in this act is that he's declared war on Rome. Yeah. So he does seem to be showing a predisposition here to, to turn. And, and if you remember back um, in the Battle of Coriolis, when some of his troops were showing um, reluctance in battle, Coriolanus turns on them and says, um, unless you unless you fight, he says, I will make my wars on you. Oh, that's right. That's right. So he, he does have, there have been intimations in the play that he has this potential to turn because, of course, he is too absolute, as his mother says of him. So uh -huh. I think those uh -huh. things in this scene are little clues that he might be up to something. Also, he refuses to take anyone with him. Mine uh, no, Cominius says, I'll, I'll come with you and get you set up somewhere. And he says, no, no, I'm fine. Right. Brushes them off. I got it. I'm a lonely dragon. You'll hear from me. Just you wait. Those last two lines or the last lines that you read, while I remain above ground, you shall hear from me still and never of me aught but what is like me formerly. 
it, how interesting that the absolute Coriolanus, absolutely unwilling to bend, now signals to us that he's not only going to bend, he's going to he's going to change form in some ways, and he knows it. Mm-hmm. This is not what we have seen thus far from Coriolanus. It's a tricky little line as well, isn't it? Never of me ought, but what is like me formerly. It's not straightforward what he said. It could mean, e- it could be taken either way, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sort of covering his tracks. And I wonder if it's because in Act 3, his mother made him do something that he didn't want to do. They, they made him be false to his nature. And now mm. that he's been set on that track, he just continues in it to the extreme. Oh, I see. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. They forced him to go um, show himself to kind of like strip, to show his wounds, to kind of in a way bargain, maybe even plead with the plebes to become consul. They forced him to do that. Against his will and against... Against what he wants to do. Yeah. Mm. So, and then he's called traitor and banished. And it's almost as if that name traitor um, calls into being what he will become. That he almost says, you're calling me a traitor. That's what I am now. Uh Uh-huh. You haven't seen traitor yet. You're about to. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You're about to. (laughs) Um, We have seven scenes in this act. In 4-2, we are with the representatives of the people, Sicinius and Brutus. They are the arch enemies of Coriolanus in the play. Um, It's kind of a little bit easy to forget that when uh, Coriolanus and Aufidius are at war with each other because there's so much action between those two men. you You can kind of be distracted by the movement of the play to lose track of his real opponents. Coriolanus's real opponents are these tribunes and the representatives of the people. But Sarah Jane, can you tell us a little bit more about the Roman, the structure of the Roman Republic? Like where do the tribunes fit in to the governing apparatus that was Rome before Julius Caesar and the empire? Yeah, that's a really good place to start. I think it helped me to figure this one out. We're dealing here with the early Republic. So Mm -hmm. we have to think that Tarquin and um, the kings have only just been expelled. So this is a really new political experiment. Right. And what is easy to forget is that the role of the tribunes is um, precarious. So it's a new appointment. Uh The patricians have given the people two um, representatives because of the riots and because of the famine. So the tribunes have only just received this authority and they've already used it against the patricians. So there's a sense in this scene that Sicinius and Brutus are a little bit worried that they've gone too far and that they could Mm -hmm. lose their power. Um, Mm -hmm. They say, now we have shown our power, i.e. in banishing Coriolanus. Right. Let us seem humbler after it is done than when it was a doing. So they're they're sort of saying to one another, well, we really should wind our necks in now um, and just lay low for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Wind our necks in. It's like another, that must be a British saying that it's like 
has the, all the charm of novelty to me. I love it. So um, it's really interesting that the patricians consented to giving the plebeians these, these two tribunes, because there's a sense in the play, I think, that the patricians never thought that, that the tribunes would have this kind of power. It was kind of a bit of tokenism, maybe to help mm. quell the riots. But mm. now um, something substantial has happened and very quickly the patricians are regretting what they've done. And in fact, when we come to it in Act 4, Scene 3, one of the Romans says, um, the nobles receive so to heart the banishment of that worthy Coriolanus that they are in a ripe aptness to take all power from the people and to pluck from them their tribunes forever. So huh. we see there how precarious the position yes. of the tribunes is. Um, yes. So that's, that's one thing to bear in mind. The tribunes are really new um, addition to the hierarchy. The next thing to... Look Sarah Jane, can I interrupt here yes, for a second? Sorry. I don't want you to lose your place. I just want to, you know, like, the history teacher in me kind of wants to zoom back out for a second and say, like, here's where we are in the history of Rome. Rome existed, like, Rome's history is tremendously long as an organized state. But I think it's helpful for people that are not familiar with it to think of it as kind of like existing in three different governmental states. The first, which you mentioned, concluded with Tarquinius, who has like the greatest, I don't know what you would call it, Tarquinius Superbus. Like I always remember, it's such an easy name to remember because it's so bizarre. That's a Tarquinius great name. Superbus, isn't it? He is the last of, weren't there seven Roman kings? Mm -hmm. Seven Roman kings that in, in ostensibly began with Romulus, who with his brother Remus, founded Rome. So Romulus, after killing Remus, you know, in some way or another is kind of like the de facto head of Rome. He's the first king of Rome. The last Tarquinius Superbus is, um, ends up being hated by the people because of his abuses. And so the Roman government changes and it becomes a Republic. As a side note, a lot of people like to talk about, um, the founding fathers of the United States kind of looking back at history for sort of like the best models of representative government. And they looked more than anything else at the Roman Republic, this sort of division of powers they really thought was a key to kind of preserving the different ebbs and flows and eddies and um, confrontations that happen in any sort of state. So they look to the Roman Republic. Then the Roman Republic concludes either with Julius Caesar or with his nephew, Caesar Augustus. It kind of depends on what your kind of like flavor of history is. I, I say Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar marches on Rome, it is in essence the end of the Republic. And he in essence, becomes a new king or a Caesar, an emperor. And that form of government, that third form of government, is the one that continues on until it collapses with, um, because it can't maintain its own structure, it gets corrupt, um, kind of like morally corrupt from the inside. The barbarian hordes are kind of chewing away at the corners of Rome, and Rome just can't support itself anymore. And so, 
we fall into, this is kind of like the advent of what we would call the medieval world is the collapse of Rome and Europe becomes decentralized for the first time in a very long time. So that's my, now I'm going to take my history hat off Sarah Jane and turn it back over to you. So the tribunes kind of have this newly appointed position within the young Roman Republic. Their position is not particularly secure. Mm. Um, and you can kind of hear that a little bit in the play, can't you? That's right. And the fact that they've achieved this banishment is, they almost can't believe it, I think, that they've, they've had this coup. Look at what we did. Yeah, look at what we've done. Oh, we better be <laughs> yeah. quiet now for a while. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so then I think it's worth looking as well at what is a consul. And let's remember, to tie it in with what you were saying about the seven kings of Rome, it was, it was Martius who banished Tarquin, wasn't it? Oh, was it? I think that's what Cominius says when he sings um, Coriolanus's praises that that Martius was in that battle. Oh wow! Rome. So, wow. Okay. Okay. One thing I didn't realize about the role of consul is that it it's it's a hangover from the previous system, so it sits slightly awkwardly in this new republic, mm. and a consul is a bit like a prime minister or president, so the chief statesman plus the general of the Roman army. So he has to be both. He has to lead Rome into war, and he also has to be a politician at home. So this is why Martius has to show his wounds to the people. It's to show that he has battle scars for Rome, and so is therefore worthy to be consul because he's actually fought and sustained Yes. So that makes sense of showing the wounds, um, which of course he never does. Um, Mm. And again, to show how sort of fluid things are perhaps in this new Republic, Coriolanus is trying to get the patricians to get rid of that tradition of showing the wounds. He's saying, can we not just get rid of that now? Yeah. Um, And it perhaps shows as well how there's there's a kind of mixture of political inertia and political fluidity in that in this new Roman Republic, they're still appointing to consul the person who is the Roman general, right. the best leader of the army, even though patently in Coriolanus's situation, he is not in any way a good statesman. Yes. So he almost gets the role by default. He doesn't really want it. He won't yes. be very good at it. And yet he is the only person, obvious person, who can be elected. Forgive me, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, Sarah Jane. Um, I'm trying to marry two things that I love almost without like reason or without bridle, Michael Jordan and Coriolanus. There's this, um, maybe, maybe it's been happening in the UK also, I suspect it has. There's this documentary that's being been released about Michael Jordan's bulls in the 1990s. And part of the kind of revelation of this 10-part miniseries documentary is how absolutely unrelentingly competitive was Michael Jordan. He just had a force of will that is like just watching the documentary. It's almost exhausting to see how he never wavered in his desire to compete and it affected his teammates. He would just ridicule his teammates if they weren't up for it. And in the documentary, they get um, commentary from him, from Michael Jordan, 
and you see he has just left a trail of kind of battered enemies and friends in his wake because he is so unrelenting. And I can't help but think of Michael Jordan cannot really do the political game. He can't pay lip service. He can't do it anymore, which is funny because when they put him before the mic as a, when he was a player, he was absolutely smooth. He was just absolutely wonderful with the media. He kind of wooed them. Um, but now that he doesn't have to do it anymore, you can just see this sort of unbending autocrat um, that just, I can't help but see that same sort of mindset in Coriolanus, the general, and to kind of force the general into this role where they have to say it mildly, say it mildly, say it mildly. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It does not work. That's right. And Shakespeare's really interested in, in this question of, you know, can there be a man for all seasons? And Coriolanus, when the people are rioting about grain, he wants to put them to the sword. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way to deal with, <laughs> with a, a public unrest. Um, so he is unsuitable, shall we say, for the role of statesman. Although, of course, he has a certain amount of strategic expertise and all kinds of power and respect. He yes. doesn't have that softness, which Menenius keeps yes. calling for. I thought it might worth be then looking at what the patricians are, which I think is fairly easy to grasp. They are the, yeah. the elites of Rome. So they're aristocrats. And one thing that's interesting in the play, which we've discussed before, is that they, they can seem quite aloof and uh, detached and above the people and at times quite dismissive of the people. But of right. course, they need the people or else they have no hierarchy. Right. So as we said before, the, the plebeians and the patricians are mutually dependent. The patricians, and especially Volumnia and Coriolanus, I think, show a lot of um, snobbery and disdain for tradesmen in Rome. Yes. Um, Volumnia actually went in the previous scene, calls down a curse. She says, now may the red pestilence strike all trades in Rome. Mm. Um, And that's a curse specifically on on the plebeians. And there's this sense, I think, that the, the patricians have got so disconnected in the play that they've forgotten who it is that um, makes their shoes, weaves the cloth, picks the harvest, um, deals with the waste, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that this, this body politic that Menenius presents us with that's so unified in his, in his story, the reality, I think, is completely different, that we have yes. this head that's almost disconnected from the body. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, um, I, I think... So the patricians in Rome, like who are they like in the modern um, political scene? I think in the United States, the best you could do is the the U.S. Senate, like the upper chamber. But I think they're much more they're much closer to the British House of Lords, aren't they? Maybe, or even to the British monarchy. Oh, really? Yeah. What's What's interesting is that the monarchy is passed down from generation to generation and it's familial and that in that way it's very much like the roman patricians so the roman patricians you you wouldn't be considered a patrician unless 
you could show that your lineage went back to, to the earliest founders of Rome. So in that way, it wasn't like our Senate, which is you have an election every, seven, every six years and you either win or you lose. No, there's also for the patricians, there's a familial element to it and not anybody can get into, can become a patrician. I think that your comparison to the House of Lords then was probably quite accurate because we have hereditary peers as well. Some are elected and some inherit the seat. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the difference, I suppose, with the monarchy here is that the monarchy now don't have direct political intervention in, in the life of the state. Um, yeah. I mean, the queen could if she wanted to, but she tends not to. And right. just signs off on, on the requests of Parliament, really. So, yeah. yeah, so that's a really good comparison, the Senate and the House of Lords. So um, anything else, Sarah Jane, that we should know about the structure of the Roman Republic? That was as far as I got, really. It's just this sense of it being very hierarchical, but a lot more unstable than it might appear. When you really yes. start to look at it, you, you see the cracks. And of course, the... The danger of that is that if Rome is divided, Rome will fall. And so that's why people like Menenius are so desperate to, to keep everything on an even keel and to keep people like Coriolanus quiet. Um, I, I want to move us into Act 4, Scene 3. There's a Coleridge quote that you mentioned off the air about the importance of that the whole play hinges on this question of whether or not Rome has grain, whether it actually has grain. So act one, scene one, very top of the play. What's happening? A riot. What's the riot about? The people lack corn and they are demanding that they get corn. Coriolanus swoops in, you know, who are you to beg for corn? We're the ones who make up our mind. We're the ones who decide whether or not you get corn or not. And where were you when we went to war? Right. So the right there, we see the, the friction. And it seems like there is this strong connection between corn or the lack of it and war. And you pointed out in the Coleridge quote that the whole kind of mystery of whether or not there's corn in Rome's coffers is a mystery. Shakespeare does not reveal the answer to, that, to us, does he? Mm. And that's perhaps what you and I found so fascinating about this play, is this, this political intrigue. So what Coleridge says is that the play has a philosophic impartiality about the political content, because mm. so long as we don't know whether the Ghanas are full we can't know whether the plebeians are right in their accusations of the patricians of saying that they have a musty superfluity of grain um, mm. and are deliberately causing a famine in order to exercise a kind of population control, or whether the patricians are telling the truth, as Menenius says in, in the first act, that they have given out all, all the grain as they should have, and it's the gods that have brought about this famine. And so it's, it's really interesting because as the audience, Shakespeare doesn't allow you to come down on either side because it's just not clear. Because, because we could say if, if the patricians are 
lying, that it's not a famine, that they're lying, then yeah. we say, oh, the patricians are the problem. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And but, Shakespeare's a revolutionary. Yes, right. Mm. But if we think the opposite, then we are more inclined to side with the lower classes. Oh, my goodness, the aristocrats, are they have grain and they're withholding it. Or excuse me, I'm telling it the opposite the other way. If there is no grain and the plebes are riding for it, well, the aristocrats are off the hook. We can't hold them accountable for mm. that. And, then and so the to, public seems so ungrateful. Right, so ungrateful. Mm. And so Shakespeare takes that central question, which could be answered with like a flick of the wrist. He could, he could tell us what the answer is, whether or not there's grain in the coffers, but he withholds that to us. And so the Coleridge quote is... There's an impartiality here. It leaves open the question about who's right and who's wrong. Mm. And it sets these two classes at loggerheads with each other. Mm. And it keeps driving forward, 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 because there's no answer to this question. Yeah. And there's no greater problem in a state, I think, than a famine to cause political unrest. Mm. So it's helpful to think of that opening scene as a grain riot and not um, class conflict at heart. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. So, yeah, absolutely right. So what's interesting, because you asked about how is this connected to the war? Well, it seems that the Volscian cities that surround Rome are not that far away. They're within a day's journey, we learn. Um, and the Volscians, Coriolanus tells us, have much corn. And actually, he says in Act 1, why don't we send our Roman rats there to gnaw at their garners? <laughs> so... It's quite possible that the wars between the Volscians and the Romans are over territory, and this could well be agricultural territory. Um, so the two things are tied together, domestic policy and... That's a great policy. insight. That's a great insight, Sarah Jane. I did not even see that. So the other thing about this, which is so brilliant in the play, is how Shakespeare then brings Martius together in this role as both a military hero but also a kind of grim reaper. So yeah. if you remember, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it now, but um, Volumnia in Act 1, Scene 3, I think, when she's describing to Virgilia what Coriolanus must be like in the battlefield, uh -huh. she says, his bloody brow with his mailed hand then wiping, forth he goes like to a harvest man that's tasked to mow or all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, how interesting. That's so great. So it's, it's almost as if he's this kind of diabolical farmer. <laughs> yes, right, right. In a time of need, in a time of like desperate need for grain, he's a diabolical farmer. That's, that's really great. But of course, Shakespeare would have known the image of the Grim Reaper because that's a medieval idea. But it's, it's anachronistic to Rome because I don't think that idea existed then. Yes. Right. And of, and of course, we're talking about all of this in the context of there being corn riots in England at the time. Yeah. That, boy, every, every once in a while, Shakespeare kind of like you see the, the, the incredible subtlety of his pen. And this is one of those moments for me. I'm like, wow, I never saw that. It's just really, really sharp. It's really sharp. Um, four, three is I, I want to go back to something you mentioned last week that we were talking about how sometimes in the barrage of Elizabethan language, 
an audience member can be kind of drowned or feel drowned. Like I, I just can't keep up. There's so much strange language coming at me, but Shakespeare will often give him his audience a summary. And I think a great summary is in four, three. So the, the, these um, kind of outside the gates of uh, Antium, there are these two kind of lower class guys talking and they just basically catch us up on everything that's happened in the end of act three in the beginning of act four. So um, the main blaze of it, the main point, the main blaze of it is past, but a small thing would make a flame again for the nobles received to heart. So to heart the banishment of that worthy Coriolanus. So these guys are gossiping and we find out like what has happened. So even if we kind of got lost, we don't know exactly what's going on. Shakespeare catches up just like you said he would. Yeah. And helpfully it's in prose. Um, and the other thing I think that's revealed to us here is how unstable the states of Rome and Antium are because there are spies from each city meeting right, right. to ha- uh, talk about a kind of coup and give mm. each other highly sensitive um, military information. Um, and so you're right, this is a, a place that's full of rumors. And yes. Rome is on edge, constantly under threat of being attacked. Um, very different to Imperial Rome. I, I have a question for you. Sarah Jane, we, this is, act four is our first prolonged exposure to the lower classes, um, the Volsky lower classes. Are they different than the Roman lower classes? Um, I, I suppose not, essentially. I think what we're shown in the play is that both cities have a similar political structure. There are senators. Mm. Um, Alphidius seems to have a similar kind of role to Coriolanus in terms of mm-hmm. advising the senators and the, uh, the common people who we meet in Antium are serving people. So they're essentially tradespeople as well, in the sense that they, they work for money, they provide a service. Um, so, uh, probably not that different, I imagine. They're, they're, they don't strike me as terribly no, different No, the either. cities are only, I think, 30 miles apart is what it says. And, and in right. three, they've only traveled a day's journey to meet up. Act four, scene four, uh, Coriolanus arrives at Antium and we figure out that he is going to approach Ophidius. Very top of the show, the audio that we heard is this kind of question and answer from Ophidius to Coriolanus. What's your name? what's your name? And I just, it's such great craftsmanship. Like this is an absolute hinge moment of the play. Coriolanus revealing himself to Ophidius and it's what the audience wants because we want to know what Ophidius is going to say. And Shakespeare refuses to give it to us for a while. He keeps holding, pulling back, not allowing Coriolanus to reveal himself. But as we heard in the audio, finally he does reveal himself. I'm Coriolanus. And I've got a little bit of more than a little bit of audio from Ophidius here that I'd like to play Sarah Jane because Ophidius's response to Coriolanus is an absolute wild card up until this point. He and Coriolanus are sworn enemies. The last time we saw them together, they were trying to choke each other out. They were just absolutely like going for it. And they, they kind of get separate on the battlefield, both survive. 
But now Coriolanus, having been exiled from Rome, goes to Aufidius and offers to kind of join forces. We don't know what Aufidius is going to say, but let's listen to what he has to say. Oh, Martians. Martians. <laughs> Each word thou hast spoke hath weeded from my heart a root of ancient envy. If Jupiter should from yon cloud speak divine things and say tis true, I'd not believe them more than thee, all noble Martius. Let me twine mine arms about that body where against my grained ash a hundred times hath broken scar the moon with splinters. Here I clip the anvil of my sword, and do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love as ever in ambitious strength I did contend against thy valour. Know thou first, I love the maid I married, never man sighed truer breath, but that I see thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart than when I first my wedded mistress saw bestride my threshold. Why, thou Mars, I tell thee, we have a power on foot, and I had purpose once more to hew thy target from thy brawn or lose mine arm for it. <laughs> Thou hast beat me out twelve several times, and I have nightly since dreamt of encounters twixt thyself and me. We have been down together in my sleep on buckling helms, fisting each other's throat, and wait half dead with nothing. Worthy Martius, had we no quarrel else to roam, but that thou art thence banished, we but muster all from twelve to seventy, and pouring war into the bowels of ungrateful Rome like a bold flood or bear. Oh, come, go in, and take our friendly senators with the hands who now are here taking their leaves of me, who am prepared against your territories, though not for Rome itself. You bless me, God. Therefore, most absolute, sir, if thou wilt have the leading of thine own revenges, take the one half of my commission, and set down as best thou art experienced, since thou knowest thy country's strength and weakness, thine own ways, whether to knock against the gates of Rome, or rudely visit them in parts remote, to fright them, ere destroy. But come in. Let me commend thee first to those that shall say yea to thy desires. <laughs> a thousand welcomes, and more a friend than e'er an enemy, yet Martius that was much. Your hand, most welcome. So Sarah Jane, we have raced forward here. Um, I, I, let's talk about like the speed of this kind of conversion. So Coriolanus, introduces himself to Aufidius, and Aufidius welcomes him with open arms and gives him half of his half of his rule. Tell us how this happened. It's been so quick, hasn't it? Because moments yeah. ago, he was at the gates of Rome saying goodbye to his mother, and now all of a sudden he's in the, right in the heart of the enemy camp. But right. in forcing four, I, I have to eat my words, I'm afraid. There are two short soliloquies by Coriolanus. Um, and last last week we said he doesn't really have any. I said that, yeah, but I was. Right. I think you're actually still right, but but I want yeah. I want to hear this. I I, will, I would very much like you to explain why I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I will. I'll do. I'll do it right now. The last week we talked about it, soliloquies. So the distinction soliloquy is alone on stage. Monologue is um, a character speaking. 
a long batch of words, but no, but with characters on stage. So we said that Coriolanus um, has no soliloquies, but here he is in 4-4, and he actually is alone on stage speaking. However, I maintain that your point is correct, because the purpose of soliloquies traditionally in Shakespeare is that, um, not every time, but often, a character is speaking to himself and he is reasoning within himself. She's reasoning within herself about what she ought to do. Here, Coriolanus is not reasoning. <laughs> like, there's no, like, um, gosh, it, would it be right or would it be wrong to turn my back on Rome, actually to march on Rome with my worst enemy? Is there anything like unvirtuous about that? There's no self-discussion about that. It's basically, I... Um, made widows out of all the Volskis, uh, out of all the Volsky women, because I'm such a great warrior. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get with um, I'm going to get with Ophidius, and we're going to march on Rome. So there's no internal debate about what I ought to do from Coriolanus. It's here's what I did. Here's what I'm going to do. Here we go. Yeah, it's it's really a bit of a plot. Um, device by Shakespeare, isn't it? Because he needs to explain to the audience why Coriolanus has suddenly turned up in Antium. And so Coriolanus keeps his mystique from the audience. You're right, we don't mm-hmm. get any intimation as mm-hmm. to what wranglings or emotions he has about this. But one thing that interested me here is that Coriolanus throughout the play has been, let's say, excessively virtuous. So when he first meets Alphidius, In the play, he says something like, I'll fight with none but thee, for I do hate thee worse than a promise breaker. Mm. And we know that Coriolanus hates the people because he thinks that they're fickle and they change their mind. But now here, right in the middle of the play, we have Coriolanus do a complete U-turn and break all his own rules. So he could, Mm. in some ways, seem a bit hypocritical here. He says, oh, world, thy slippery turns. But is it really the world that's turned or is it just Coriolanus or does he see himself right. as the world? Um, yeah. he, <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Hey, what's that line? Um, we, like, like a planet? Oh, he struck Coriolis like a planet. Like a planet he struck Coriolis? Yeah, so to your point. So he says in this short sort of soliloquy, friends now fast sworn can become vicious enemies. And then he says, so fellest foes by some chance can grow to be dear friends. Mm. And he kind of uses this idea that it's like an accident of fate, that the world has turned and suddenly there he is in the bosom of Aphidius. But of course, it's, yeah. it's been driven entirely by him. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And he says very clearly, my birthplace hate I. And he says, I'll enter. I'll go into Antium. If he slay me, he does fair justice. If he give me way... I'll do his country service. And Mm -hmm. so he enters Antium on this um, knife edge, really, not knowing whether he's going to be killed immediately. Yes, right. Taken under Alphidus' wing and enabled to get his revenge. So he's taking a massive risk here. But boy, is he gutsy. (laughs) He's really gutsy. Um, He's really gutsy. And it pays it paid off. So explain this to me, Sarah Jane. Explain why Ophidius can just turn. We heard it 
in the audio, the second audio that we played, Ophidius turns and embraces him. And not only embraces him, it's almost as if like they're kind of lovers. It's like the language is very, it's voluptuous romantic language mm. in a lot of places. And he offers him half of his command. How does this happen? I mean, I read it and I absolutely believe it. I'm like, yes, this is, I, I can absolutely see this happening. But the sort of, it, now I'm going to start answering my own questions. <laughs> James. Um, they strike me, Coriolanus and Ophidius, as, as two magnets that mm -hmm. when they oppose each other, they drive each other apart and they could, they, there is absolutely no connection. And then in a split second, if you've got two small magnets and you leave them alone, they can align and snap together just like that. And it seems like uh, just it's almost the physics of their relationship brings these two magnets together. And now they are unified in a common foe against a common foe. And that is Rome. Mm. And again, we've had intimations of this in act one. Um, yes. Marsh has said, um, I sin in envying his nobility. So mm. Marsh is aware even there that he has this kind of um, admiration for his nemesis. And I'm yeah. sure this is true with, I don't know, top tennis players, top boxers who go head to head, one to one. They must, they must have a similar kind of professional respect for one another. Yes. Admiration. <laughs> Um, I, I think about, I mentioned this in the first, I think, uh, act one of this podcast. My friend Andrew is a big MMA fan, mixed martial arts, and I've watched a few fights with him. And these fighters in the press conferences before the match will be just dripping venom for each other. And, and I believe everywhere, they just hate each other. They get in the ring, they smash each other to bits. And then the, the, I started to say the play ends and then the, um, the match ends. And these two men who have drawn each other's blood with their own hands, who have shouted things about each other's mothers, then clasp each other. And like the, the respect that each has for the other seems so genuine. And it happens like it happens in act, act four, scene, whatever it is, five, it's, they snap together like that. That's the reason why I find this scene just so believable because I've seen it. We've seen it over and over and over. Mm. And I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about the, the imagery of um, marriages and yeah. it isn't being like um, a bride and groom. So we get a little precursor for this in act four, scene three, where Nicanor says, I have heard it said the fittest time to corrupt a man's wife mm -hmm. is when she's fallen out with her husband. Now that's obviously mm -hmm. a metaphor referring to Coriolanus as the wife of Rome, right. fallen out with Rome, and now she's gone to have an adulterous affair with the enemy. Um, right. And so that's the picture that we're given then that, that Alphidius picks up on. And um, it's, I think, as we've discussed a little bit before, full of imagery of, of the battle, um, the idea of kind of rather than a violent consummation, there's a loving consummation and yeah. it does fit really neatly. And um, 
Shakespeare's definitely interested in this, especially in Antony and Cleopatra, which he's writing concurrently, where you see imperial Rome as um, this kind of lazy, excessive, languid time of, of love. And Republic Rome is is a time for fighting and being hungry. Right. And, and actually, I think there was a quotation you mentioned um, where yeah, I'm an, I'm, says that he prefers war to peacetime. It's from 4-3. So I'm just going to read these two sections from uh, two, three serving men. First ser- serving men. Let me have war, say I. It exceeds peace as far as day does night. It's sprightly, waking, audible, and full event. Peace is a very apoplexy, lethargy, mold, deaf, sleepy, insensible, a getter of more bastard children than war is a destroyer of men. Second serving men. Tis so. And as war, in some sort, may be said to be a ravisher, so it cannot be denied, but peace is a great maker of cuckolds. Maker of cuckolds being a reference to the cuckold bird is the bird that would go, is it the male would go, would go sleep with another bird while his mate was on the nest, I believe. Yeah. And it's a, it's a common uh, phrase in Elizabethan and Jacobean England for adultery that you've been cuckolded. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a a lot of the beginning of Richard the third, um, oh, I can't remember the quotation exactly, but he says, um, I who was not made for sports yeah. tricks or to cause an amorous looking glass. Um, I hate the idle pleasures of these days. Yes. Time of peace. And he fares much better in times of war. He yeah. Says, now I must prove a lover and he can't. Right. Um, and that certainly seems the case with Alphidius and Martius and, and these serving men that they all, all these kind of Republicans prefer to be on the, uh, on the offensive that they do. Better. Yes. Yes. And Shakespeare shows actually, this seems to be what Shakespeare thinks of Rome. He thinks it does better when it's being oppressed and when it's mm-hmm. fighting than mm-hmm. in times of peace, that it, it becomes glutted. Um, and, uh, uh, destroys itself essentially when when it's when it's a peacetime and and isn't that what um, Volumnia says about her imaginary sons back in Act One Scene Three? Had I eleven sons, I had rather eleven surfeet out of action huh. and one. No, I'd rather eleven die nobly in battle than one surfeet out of action. And she gives yeah. all these sons. Um, kind of glutton, being gluttonous and staying at home and doing nothing. Yeah. Much better to be lean, mean, and hostile and out there fighting. There's a, a great essay by Walker Percy, the wonderful 20th century novelist. Um, and in the essay, he says, why was my, I hope I get this right, why was the happiest day of my grandfather's life the day that he heard that we had declared war on so-and-so? I mean, he's just, Percy is befuddled by this aspect of human nature. And I, it, I might even say it's masculine nature 
that war and conflict is it's more enlivening it's more quickening it's more gratifying than is peace mm. it's i mean it's a kind of grotesque thing about my gender and i've got to own it i can totally identify with this you know there's something very like <laughs> i have kind of cre- i found myself kind of creating enemies sometimes because it's there's a perverse joy in it. I'm well, not I mean, proud of it. The entire sports industry, which exactly is dominantly male, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. It's also, isn't it, a huge distraction and a way of escaping the kind of petty domestic right tensions that are, in a way, so much harder to deal with. And absolutely right, an enemy. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine Coriolanus washing the dishes and? getting in a spat with neglecting the dishes or something like that. There are no heroes really in peacetime, are there? Right. Right. Um, Yeah. So this scene, uh, you picked up on the fact that it's the serving men who are talking to each other. Right. I think it's really interesting how Coriolanus now is starting out again from rock bottom in a sense. Mm. So we've seen him rise to the top in Rome. Yes. And then fall. And now he's starting out um, he's kind of coming through the tradesman's enten- entrance into Alphidius's house. He's being abused by the, the serving men. <laughs> yes, right. Who won't even let him right. in. Um, and this is, you know, the greatest warrior Rome's ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's, that's the really dramatic thing about this play is that Coriolanus falls twice. So then now in Antium, we see he very quickly rises to the top again and then obviously falls as it's a tragedy. And the other interesting thing is that act one, our first introduction to Rome, it begins with a famine and a riot, discontent. Here we have the opposite in Antium. It's a feast and there are people having a great time. Alphidius is obviously um, having some drinks with the senators and making a plan on how they're going to go and smack Rome. And this is where Alenus walks into. It seems like a much happier place in in a way. than It does. For now, for now, for now. <laughs> um, end of Act Four. We kind of hear these reports from. Excuse me. End of Act Four, Scene Five. We hear reports from these serving men that Coriolanus is sitting around the table, enjoying himself, and he's convincing everyone. We learn that his the kind of reasoning that he is so reluctant to do back in Rome, but does all the time, um, that he is demonstrating great capacity to convert, cajole those people who he needs now to take up his new task to march on Rome. Mm. So maybe we underestimated Coriolanus, the politician. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that was a great question that you asked. Like, why does Alphidius concede half of his um, military prowess, mm-hmm. Coriolanus, immediately? Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting question. And so who is, who is the better strategic operator here, Coriolanus or Alphidius? Right. Because Alphidius, is, he's got a cool head in the way that he's perhaps more stoical than Martius, I think. Um, Martius has gone into this for spite. He wants vengeance, yep. it's personal, yep. his pride is wounded. Um, 
He says he's there, but in mere spite to be full quit of those my banishers. And he says, why don't you make my misery serve thy turn? I cannot live but to thy shame unless it be to do thee service. So, yes. so Martius is very clear that he's come to broker a deal and make concessions uh, to Alphidius. He says, look, I'm here. You use me however you want to. I just want to get my own back on Rome. And Alphidius right. perhaps in his cool and calculating um, position of strength here says, okay, let's see what I can do with this. And um, so perhaps he gives half now in order yes. to get everything later. In act four, scene seven, the very closing of the act, we will see what Ophidius, we'll get a, a glimmer of Ophidius's plan. So let's talk about that when we get there. Mm. Act four, scene six, we are back in Rome and there's this wonderful bit of irony. So we're with the Tribunes. The Tribunes are the ones who have kind of made sure that Coriolanus is exiled. They're not in the least bit worried about these <laughs> rumors that he's joined with Ophidius, right? They brush him off. No, we've got nothing to worry about. We're doing just fine. Now, it's a brilliant piece of irony, isn't it, Sarah Jane, that the audience knows hell is about to open up on them. They have no idea yet. We know he's joined with Ophidius. They're about to march on Rome. And we see the tribunes kind of gloating over the, like, the kind of like um, exiled corpse of Coriolanus. You know, they're the ones who got him banished. We got nothing to worry about. And I thought it might just be fun. Um, I'm going to give you the fun lines if we could read a bit of four six. So, on my pagination, it's three ten. The lines I'd like to read are from Sicinius and Brutus, and I'd like you to read the first few lines from. I think we're saying a dial. I'm not sure what the name of this um, kind of servant messenger is, but maybe you could read those lines thirty nine yeah. through whatever forty two. So I'm going to start with um, 30, line 36, Sicinius. We should by this, to all our lamentation, if he had gone forth, consul found it so. Brutus, the gods have well prevented it, and Rome sits safe and still without him. Enter Adele. Worthy tribunes, there is a slave whom we have put in prison, reports the Volskis with two several powers are entered in the Roman territories and with the deepest malice of the war destroy what lies before him. <laughs> Oh, so great. <laughs> like just the blade cuts right through all that kind of um gloating from the two tribunes Sicinius and brutus it's, just it's brilliant right it's such it a brilliant really piece is. of theater this because of the tension of the dramatic irony we've also had a little bit of um a bit of comic relief in the previous scene where, where there's some joking among the service serving men in Alphidius's house. It's quite low humor. It's something that the groundlings in Shakespeare's audience would have really enjoyed. Yeah. And now we're back at the height of the yes. political and martial intrigue. And the, the interesting thing is the reactions, because this is sort of unfolding in real time for Sicinius, Brutus, and Menen Menenius on the stage. Um, and Sicinius and Brutus, first of all, are like, no, we don't believe you. It's just some slave. Uh -huh. Beat him and send him away. And Menenius is like, mm, well, maybe try and find out a bit more first. And then even yeah. before that debate is finished, someone else comes in and says, hang on, this, uh, a messenger comes and says, 
the nobles in great earnest are going all to the Senate house. Some news is coming. Um, and we find out that there's many mouths declaring that Martius joined with Alphidius and leads a power against Rome. So yeah. it's really dramatically interesting that it really at is. this point, Sicinius and Brutus are like, no, it can't be true. It's just a right. rumor. And again, it shows how many rumors there are in Rome. Right, right. Yeah, the rumor mongering is, mm. is at a high. 4-7, we close our act with 4-7. Um, and we, we hear Ophidius talking with his friend. And I wonder what you think about Ophidius's position uh, to Coriolanus here, Sarah Jane. So he welcomes him with open arms. You know, Coriolanus, you know, unmasks himself. Ophidius greets him, embraces him. I give you half my command. And now in 4-7... Is Ophidius having second thoughts, or is he revealing to us what he, uh, a plan that he has been concocting? This is a really interesting scene, this one, isn't it? Because we get a bit of sort of character analysis, which is we never get that very often in this play. It's mostly action. And right. um, we learn that Coriolanus has become a kind of talisman or like a cult leader for the Volscans, mm. that they use mm -hmm. him as the graceful meat. So they, they say their prayers to him. He's got this godlike yeah. status. Um, and the lieutenant's really concerned about this. And he's saying, Alphidius, you know, this is kind of, this is cramping your style. Why have you let this mm. happen? Right. Alphidius is wonderfully detached. He kind of sits back and says, hmm, yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand Coriolanus. He's got these different facets. Um, so he says, to the lieutenant, look, there isn't a lot I can do unless by using means I lame the foot of our design. He says, I can't, I can't tame Coriolanus now because he's the foot, he's, he's going to march on Rome. I can't lame yes. him. He's leading the charge. And yes. Alphidius has this kind of patience and coolness that Coriolanus doesn't have. He says quite detachedly, of Coriolanus, I think he'll be to Rome as is the osprey to the fish who takes it by sovereignty of nature. Wonderful metaphor. <laughs> it is. Um, he's wrong, of course, because Coriolanus um, turns out does have um, the milk of mercy in him more than in a mm. male tiger. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. he concedes. But he, he it's really interesting. He kind of, Aphidius goes through what he's trying to figure out what motivated Coriolanus and what happened to him. Because of course, Alphidius wasn't there when he was banished. Right. And he says, um, first he was a noble servant to them. This is, is to the patricians and the people, but he could not carry his honors even whether twas pride, which out of daily fortune ever taints the happy man, whether defect of judgment or whether nature not to be other than one thing. And he goes through all these different things that might have caused Coriolanus's downfall. So he says, could have been pride, it could have been a defect of judgment, like a Hamasha, that he's just made a rash decision, or that he is unable to, <laughs> he's unable to change his mind. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's kind of, once he's made up his mind, he's too absolute. Um, but there's a, there's a, go on. Well, I was going to say off the air, we talked about, 
the opening of Hamlet, uh, the version by Laurence Olivier has a kind of preface that says, this is a story of a man who couldn't make up his mind. Hamlet is a story of a man who couldn't make up his mind. Um, conversely, maybe Coriolanus is the story of a man who can't change his mind. Yeah, I think that's really sharp, profound insight there. That's really good. I got it from you. I got it from you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Now, okay. Now I sound like Volumnia um, singing, singing my own praises. Or singing her own praises. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really, what I like about Ophidius, though, is that he doesn't pretend to understand Coriolanus. He says, who knows? It could have been this. It could have been pride. It could have been this. It could have been that. Never mind. We're just going to use him. Right. He's going to be a pawn. To smack Rome. Yeah. Right. Right. I'd love to hear those last two, that couplet that concludes the act. So for me, lines, for everybody, lines 56 and 57 of 4-7. When, Caius, Rome is thine, thou art poorest of all, then shortly art thou mine. That's a good way to end. Mm. We see that if... Caius Martius Coriolanus does, in fact, conquer Rome. Uh, it's going to all work toward Ophidius's example. It's the first time that we've seen someone who has a. Mm, he is going to. He is using Coriolanus, and Coriolanus hates to be used. But it seems clear at this point in the play that he is being. The Coriolanus is being turned and used for Ophidius's goals. Mm. We'll see how that goes if, if Ophidius gets what he wants in Act 5. Uh, yeah. What are you looking for? What should we read for in Act 5? Which we read for in Act 5, Sarah Jane? I'm just sorry to step back, Tim. I just wanted to make oh, yeah, sure that it's yeah. clear to listeners what those lines mean, because I think they're quite um, dense and difficult. Um, so that little couplet, the fact yeah. that it rhymes is, is first of all a signal to the audience that that's the end of this very long act. I'm probably right. now people are like, are we ever going to get there? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But what Alphidius is saying is that when Caius has conquered Rome, he then has served his purpose for Alphidius and so is poorest of all. And Caius then is at the mercy of Alphidius because Alphidius no longer needs him to do anything yes. to him, and so can dispose of him. And we see that that is what happens. Then shortly art thou mine. So he says, don't worry, I'm just going to wait it out and I'll get you in the end. And it's yeah. really sinister, but there's a sense that Caius is hot-headed and maybe immature, whereas Martius seems, and, and quite often I've seen it played that, sorry, Alphidius is older that oh, huh. and, and of course, in the end, when we get to Act 5, what one of the things that I'd like us to look at is this um, insult that really enrages Coriolanus is that Alphidius calls him a boy. Yes, boy. Yeah. Yeah, he does not go for that. I am very curious to see how Coriolanus's family is going to respond to the news that he is marching on them because it's not as if they will have the how do i say it it seems unlikely that a life preserver will be thrown to them 
amid the flood of warfare that's coming down on them. Coriolanus is marching on Rome, and they're in Rome. He's going. That's, this is a you know this is a prop. This is a massive dramatic conflict that's looming on the horizon. He's going to tread upon his mother's womb. Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's jarring. And that's where we see the image of, of Volumnia's body and the body of Rome become one thing. Yes. Right. Oh, this play, this play. I, I felt a little bit justified. I was, I saw somewhere that T.S. Eliot considers. Um, yes. Coriolanus to be dramatic. Yeah. Success. Yeah. Right. Um, someone might quibble and say, yeah. And, and T.S. Eliot also thought that Hamlet was an artistic failure, which I think in context, it's, it's a little bit less of a jarring thing that T.S. Eliot said about Hamlet than it usually is quoted among us nerds, Sarah Jane, <laughs> among us nerds who quote T.S. Eliot referring to Hamlet. I'm actually trying. I've got the quotation in my notes. Here. Oh, do you? Do you? Let's hear it. I can't find it and it would bore people while I look for it. But yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe if we can find it before next week, maybe we'll. Hamlet is right. Uh, Hamlet, you know, as an actor and director, Tim, you'll probably agree with this, that Hamlet as a play is very difficult. There, there aren't many parts there's one or two really good massive parts and, and everything mm-hmm. else kind of fades around that. It's far too yeah. long. Um, a lot of it is just soliloquy. It's, it's a lot of uh, externalizing of internal thoughts. Coriolanus, I mean, if you've paid for your ticket, you get a double fall of your protagonist. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Bang, two bangs for your buck. Um, it's almost like a perfectly chiastic, Greek tragedy. Aristotle would have really liked this one. He would have loved this play. Yeah. Even like I was thinking about how much Aristotle would love like the revelation of Coriolanus to Ophidius. Like it's such an Aristotelian yeah. moment. I mean, it does break unity of time, place, and action, but perhaps perhaps Aristotle would accept that given that it's several thousand years in advance of what they were doing. I think you yeah, I think you might. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think dramatically this one is and then we have, as we said, that mystery at the center who's right, the plebeians or the patricians. Right. It pains me to cast any insults upon Hamlet because I love the play so much, but I do have to confess that part of the reason that I love Hamlet is because I love Hamlet cut. And we almost always see an edited version of Hamlet. We don't see the full four and a half, five hours. Mm, And I think the cuts benefit the play. Whereas I think Coriolanus, I'm not sure... I mean, perhaps you trim it here and there, but I'm not sure what you cut about Coriolanus. It seems much more, what is the word? Um, I think it would be diminished if it was, if it was greatly edited. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, We made a decision recently to start releasing these in batch. So if, excuse me, to stop releasing these in batch that we're going to start, we're going to go back to our method of releasing them one by one because people signaled on the Facebook page that they really enjoy kind of like having the accountability of knowing another act will be released soon. So Um, Those of you who are listening, that's just a little peek behind the curtains about why we have gone back to releasing on a weekly basis instead of as a batch. Um, Please join us on the Close Reads Facebook page 
is always lively and insightful and warm there. It's the most civilized corner of the internet as far as I'm concerned. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, Act 5 of Coriolanus, our final podcast before the Question and Answer podcast in which we wrap up all of the loose ends of this magnificent play. For Sarah Jane Bentley, I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.